You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of battery from rangefinders to trail cameras to your truck, car batteries, anything, any type of battery that you can think of, visit your local Interstate Batteries retail location and talk with a battery specialist. For more information about the company and all of the batteries that these guys offer, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back, guys. Um, Adam and Matt here at the QDMA Whitetail Weekend in Georgia. Um, The old Athens, Georgia. That's right. We are here quarantined into our uh, hotel room. Just kidding. Um, we are at the only event happening in the world yeah, that hasn't the, been canceled. The only uh, conglom- conglomeration of individuals <laughs> who care so much about deer and habitat. We're willing to fight through corona. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, this is... Uh, man, this has been a blast. This is the last day that we're recording this podcast on... So we've been here for uh, two days. Kind of the first evening was a get-together, meet-and-greet, registration. And then the next day, we were at the QDMA, the headquarters, the building, where all, let's say, the magic happens um, for the organization. We had a lot of outside events um, throughout the day, different guest speakers, the opportunity to go to the University of Georgia, their deer lab facility. People walked through that, saw all of it. And then today was more of the um, seminar-type gatherings. Yep. Yep. So yesterday we spoke on uh, saddles and how we implement, uh, you know, we had the tethered saddles. We had the the new Phantom in last year's Manus. We were basically talking to a a group of of guys who traditionally hunt a lot of private ground. So how we use saddles in private ground – uh, hunting and how it's not just for public land running gun hunters, but it can also be used for guys who have a pile of tree stands. But every once in a while, you need to tweak and and go to that specific spot. So, pre- presented yesterday in the field on saddle hunting, and then today, and the topic of today's podcast um, is increasing usable space for whitetails. Um, 
Typically, you hear usable space, and you hear it a lot with Kyle and Frank, a um, couple other consultants we have, um, that they they use it a lot in the Upland site. Uh, but it's a term that could really be used for any kind of specific game management. And since so many of our listeners are whitetail guys, or they may be quail guys, but they're also whitetail hunters, we're going to use it in a in a uh, whitetail application. And so basically this was our our uh, our little spill or seminar we gave today here at QDMA Whitetail Weekend. Um, but we are going to jump into it and, and allow you guys to hear it right here on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. There, there's so much to be able to, to take away from um, this this topic. Um, we, we talk so, so much about, let's just say, the, the spatial distribution of these different features. But what's important is the fact of, of just having them present on a landscape. And and honestly, today's conversation, we kicked off this afternoon presenting and uh, obviously about usable space for whitetails. And then Craig Harper came right behind and um, discussed laying out a property. And so we, we were talking about prefacing the, the actual layout of the property, what needs to be there, why it needs to be there, and what's the value of those resources for the white-tailed deer. So uh, in combination here, um, it's kind of a one-two punch for all those in attendance to really understand the value that it takes uh, and, and I should say the value, the resources it takes in the management and layout of, of properties to creating them for dynamic white-tail hunting. So we're yeah. going to break down basically one of our clients' properties um, from south-central Missouri. And, yeah. and take you from day one when we were on site and what that looked like. And then as we move through the recommendations um, and the slides that you guys unfortunately won't be able to see, you'll just be able to hear basically the presentation itself. Um, but we're going to walk you through what the impact was. Because yeah. it's, it's so hard, Adam, to to just talk about it and say, okay, this is good. This is good. This will be, this will be an addition. This will be... Um, a, a nice additive to this area of the farm, but like, what does that actually value? Like, w- without numbers applied to it, it's hard to to quantify. What do you mean, how good? Like, what can I expect, increase wise? But that's what we're going to do today. Yes. Before we jump in, though, we got a quick shout out to uh, one of our um, one of our partners who make this podcast possible, Pure Air Natives. Um, all kinds of blends and and uh, things that we've. Shoot, we've helped develop some blends with them. So uh, to increase your habitat, whether it be for pollinators, quail, or deer, check them out at pureairnatives.com. First off, I guess when we get into this, we need to define usable space and really what that looks like. And, you know, there's a great blog um, that Kyle uh, wrote um, on our website that basically defines and talks about usable space. But basically we're looking... Uh, we're trying to quantify or or, or uh, let you understand what usable space is. And, and in simple terms, we're just talking about um, a s- usable space is suitable cover at a given time is how Kyle defines it. So you're looking over the course of a year, 12 months, and you're looking at s- uh, an area that provides some sort of cover benefit and how long that can be. Um, and so for whitetail, we kind of are looking at it from a space of going how much benefit is 
and cover that is also food, and how long can we stretch that out over? So instead of having a cover factor that's good for three weeks out of the year, let's just say, let's use an eastern red cedar monoculture, provides pretty good cover, thermal cover, during a short period of time when that may be a severe type, severe blizzard or whatever. We're looking at how can we create a area that is cover, that is also food, that is beneficial for six to eight to ten months, or as long of a period as we can make that in a year. Or, or if we need that great thermal cover, depending on the region, can we have that available on the property? But, but in relation, or let's say composition, it doesn't need to be. 25 acres of 150 acre property we only need maybe five acres worth of that component because it's a smaller time frame in which deer are actually going to be using it aka usable space why take up 25 acres when it really only needs to be five and then therefore we can increase the production out of the other 20 acres of the property so um yeah I, i think i guess initially ask yourself Whatever property is that you hunt, you manage, you own, when are you seeing deer most active on the property? Like, are there gaps in activity where you're not seeing deer associating that much with the property? And that's what we're going to be addressing, those those downfall, those lull periods. Yes. So we've taken a typical property. Um, it's 150 acres and uh, kind of an odd shape. So a lot of guys, the dream property is a big square um, but it's an odd shape, so a lot of guys can relate to it. You don't always get that square. No, no you don't. And so you kind of have like a vertical panhandle that drops down into a, you know, a couple twenty, or uh, yeah, I guess they're forty acre, forty acre squares, kind of an upside down backwards L shape, and uh, you know it's got a creek that runs through it, not a real big creek, kind of blows up with a lot of rain and then goes back down as a lot of gravel during the rest of the year um access is you know not great but it's it's there at least workable and then you have um 25 acres of hay field this is when we showed up so at 25 acres that's being cut for hay not producing a lot of income um and is all tall fescue for the most part. There's few clumps of little blue stem and ending grass popping up in these bottom fields, in these hay fields, but not a lot. It's pretty dominant. It's dominated by tall fescue. Um, and then the rest is timber. So that's kind of a breakdown. You've got, you know, the property key features. Um, 110 acres of timber that is pretty much tall closed canopy forest and, and and kind of high stem density low value from yeah. a quality and direction of that forest the way it's headed right now yeah and so you know when you look at that um very unproductive but a mixed species you've got a lot of uh, hickories and oaks and you have some understory trees with flowering dogwood then you have your classic eastern red cedar scattered through um Creek drainages, riparian areas, got some bur oaks, got some American elm and some hackberry. Um, and then there's a unit in the eastern part of this farm that's got a, uh unrestored glade um, that was, you know, choked out or is choked out. Um, eastern red cedars popping up through it quite a bit. Struggling native warm season grasses and forbs. 
um, and a little bit of post oak, chinkapin oak scattered around. Nothing there is really that productive because it's been unmanaged. It's been neglected. So what Forbes and native warm season grasses are struggling underneath the eastern red cedar. The post oak is too thick. Um, there's a lot of stems that are competing with each other, so they're not really flourishing. Um, and so kind of all things leading to a property that when purchased was very low productive um, landscape. Yeah, and it's funny because um, what we see is that this happens all the time. Like, well, this this is the condition of most recreational properties that will visit that a landowner maybe hasn't done that much. Maybe it's just new to them, and previous landowners never maintained uh, for increased wildlife val- value or or usable space. It just was a raw piece of land that yes, there happened to be deer on it at certain times of the year, utilizing it to some degree, but by and large, it's been unmaintained and underutilized. Um, therefore, the value to wildlife is really, really pretty low. Absolutely. Um, and so, and honestly, they can go back and listen to the a podcast with this landowner talk about this property. Yes. Um, and it's called uh, Client Success Transforming Wreck Property. And that um, podcast was dropped back in December, early December of um, 2019 and so you, you'll be able to hear from the landowner's perspective what this property has endured since so yeah so how productive at the time of purchase um, you know it's a lot of these values that we're getting ready to mention are are pulling from the research that Dr. Craig Harper has done at the University of Ten- Tennessee Extension that uh, basically this is not just biomass produced this is actually selecting um what a deer eats so instead of taking a plant and and taking the whole plant saying okay that's whatever that the weight dried weight of that plant is it's actually what a deer is selecting in the forage so timbered acres about 110 or about 110 acre acres of closed canopy forest that's going to produce roughly 50 to 100 pounds per acre every year and and we know that you know deer's consuming 2,000 pounds so that's a lot of acres of just timber ground that it takes to be able to feed deer now one deer we yeah one deer and we know that no deer aren't going to stay just in that timber they're going to move around however that still provides us the the lack of value that timbered acres produce and this is not incorporating mass production but we, we can't rely on mass production. We know that that is um, extremely variable from year to year. And so we can't just bank on it. And especially in a closed canopy forest. like a, a Closed canopy that's unhealthy. Yeah. Like we, we're going to have, even at that point, reduced mass quantities when there is production on those years. Oh, yeah. So this is 80 acres of digestible forage, not including mass. But golly, that's bad. Yeah, so you take 110 closed canopy, roughly, let's just say 80, somewhere in the middle. Yep. We're going with 80 pounds produced. 8,800 pounds. 8,800 pounds. Roughly, roughly eight deer. Yeah. On on 110 acres, that that would let's say quote unquote support. But again, we we know that oh, even more in more like that, four deer. Oh uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I totally did a thousand pounds. Yeah. So four deer, but but we know that okay in that closed canopy system, we don't have forage produced throughout the entire year 
It's been either. a long day. It has been a long day. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got it's four deer that can really corona. have enough that if living there year-round, yeah, right, right, they right, would right. have four deer food. That's not very good numbers at all. It's no. awful. No. And you think about think about it from a standpoint of a big picture, a landscape. Think about your neighborhood. If there's any timber and it's closed canopy and there's not a lot of undergrowth, woo. Well, here, here's the funny part, and I, everyone's probably been guilty of this. You you look at a landscape and you're like, okay, is there cover there? Is there cover there? And we're talking through an aerial image, 30,000-foot view, and uh, all you see this big timber block. You're like, oh, there's 3,000 acres of timber. There's piles of deer in there. Uh, well, we just we just learned that there's maybe 100 pounds of food in there per acre. But d- just because there's trees there and there's a big block of timber – does not mean that it's one cover, nor does it mean that there is great food value. Therefore, it does not mean that there is a higher concentration of deer in that unit because of the big. No block. wonder they leave to go to the neighbors, yeah. or they they herd up in the winter and they're and your deer vanish. No wonder that happens because there's not any food there, and we're just talking about food. What's the cover quality? <laughs> Terrible, horrid. The only reason you may see deer going there is because we stay out of it. It's like, yeah. oh, the timber. There's That's where the deer are. Just uh, well, yeah, when, when was the last time you were there? Oh, I probably haven't been over there on that hillside for a year and a half. Well, okay. That kind of helps explain why we're just bumping deer out of despite it being horrible cover. Yeah. And so then we go to the open acres, which is, you know, the remainder 40 acres um, of this property. Yeah. Give or take. That is mostly tall fescue, which mm-hmm. is awful for for deer and wildlife. So quail, wild turkeys, white-tailed deer. There's very little, if any, cover value as well. Yeah, like it's like a double whammy from and the it's wildlife a perspective. Very heavy monoculture, so mm-hmm. we're not attracting a lot of insects for forage for quail and tur- and turkeys. Um, there's very the deer aren't eating it. It's not growing tall enough to be great cover. Um, so therefore it's, it's really, really bad. Um, and then you go to the unrestored glade, um, which is, you know, okay. It's a little bit better than everything else because we do have some natives present. So the cover is, is better. There are some forbs there. So the food value for deer is better, but it's still unmanaged. I'm still calling it poor in its current condition. Yeah. And this is just like this is just a typical property that you'd see in the Midwest. But where this is typical. You buy something, average. it maybe at one point was cattle, or it maybe at one point had hay cut off of it. But we're trying to restore it back to say, hey, these are my goals as a white-tailed deer hunter. Oh, we got work to do. Yeah, absolutely. So it just uh, there's a lot of things to do. When and also when you consider, okay, so we know it's bad. Yep. Now, how do we move forward? How do we make it better? We're thinking about a white-tailed deer's needs from January to December, because 12 months out of the year. We have to go back to the usable space definitions. It's it's a the value of a specific location over time. Yes. So we can't just evaluate of say, okay, I've got this on it. It's good. When is it good? When is it valuable? When are deer going to utilize it? When are they going to respond to it? So we have to break it out in months. So typically, what are we looking at for January to March? Of, of the cover type and forage type that deer are responding to the most. Is ragweed growing? No. no Is not pokeweed growing? Not in no. this location at So all. we're thinking yeah. woody browse. Yep. We need a lot of woody browse available from January to March. Yep. So and young forest? Young forest would be great. Shrubs would be great. Anything that's within reach. Yep. 
woody browse isn't necessarily a, a woody stem. If it's above where a deer can reach, it's probably not that great. They're not getting any forage out of it. Right. So and cover therefore is then lacking <laughs> probably in that area or could yes. be improved. So a great thing would be young forest. Yep. Um, you can so you could look at blocks of young forest, or you could look at um, forest stand improvement or timber stand improvement to allow that there be some woody regen on some stumps in the forest from a big scale. But other, all we need is more browse available. That's yep. what our goal is. So we can create hot spots of woody browse, or we can scatter it out across the landscape. And we'll explain what we mean by that a little later. Fast forward and go into more of spring green up. You go from April to June. Um, we're starting to move into a lot of, like I said, spring green up. So there's a lot more plants greening up. They're very palatable. They're very young. You can go into early successional um, plant communities, which would be phenomenal. Phenomenal. But guess how much early successional plant is growing in uh, plant communities are growing in closed canopy forest? Very little. Like. A sprout, a even sprig. if the even if the timber's burned, you're not getting a great a great response. Here's the thing about burning with closed canopy: you're getting a glimpse. Like you're 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 flicking a light on for two weeks, and then the the leaves leaf out, and the light goes right back off. Yeah, and you're done. You, you, it's you, like you, <gasps> uh, oh oh, I'm done. So if you're weighing out, where's the best where's time best spent? Is it better to burn closed canopy, or is it better just to cut closed canopy? Cut. Cut. Cut away. Because you can burn and burn and burn, but your response is very limited compared to take a year or two off from burning and spend some time just cutting some trees. Yeah, absolutely. And trust me, trust me, trust me. There's a lot of trees in any given woodlot that don't need to be there that aren't serving the purpose and are decreasing the usable space for whitetails on yeah. your property. Yeah, because this is what happens when you burn closed canopy timber. You'll burn anywhere from January to March or early April, okay? And you'll get this immediate, you know, a week or two later, you'll start seeing green growth. And you think, oh, wonderful, this is great. But then March, April, May, wherever you're at in the world, you're going to see leaves start to grow, shaded once again, and the growth is cut off. And then you sit there with ankle to knee high growth knee high is a little bit of a stretch D even. don't don't get me wrong it's better than not but i would much rather cut some trees but but we can burn after we've increased the amount of light that's going to sustain more forage throughout the entire growing season yes like that doesn't make sense to you're pulling the cart before the horse by it's burning a, it's a practice that could first. be that that is yes it's at the wrong time you need yeah. to focus on phases getting some sunlight to the forest floor so April through June, early early successional plant communities would be great to have. Well, um, that, that's what yeah, because that's what they're wanting. That's yeah. what they're desiring. As well as even some woody brows involved in that. So blackberry brows, black raspberry, just having the the bramble aspect where they're still going to browse it while it's greening up. That'd be great. But here's the thing that people. This is what why we have to talk about this is because if it's not on the landscape, deer aren't going to be able to utilize it. But if you haven't, I know it sounds stupid, but if you haven't experienced what old field or early successional plant communities are going to look like, then you're not going to know the value of them because you haven't seen or observed deer utilizing them. But I promise you, if it's there during these time frames, they will absolutely way prefer and spend majority of time in those areas because of the plant communities that are present and growing and offering usable space during these times. So we're talking... 
we've covered two two time periods here, January through June. Yep. You knock off a couple of months, January through April. We're talking about a deer is coming out of the rut for the most part. There's still some rut activity down south and other places, but for the most of the whitetail hunters, they're dealing with a November rut. Um, and you go into that time frame. Rut's over. They're trying to recuperate, and does are pregnant, getting ready to drop fawns, um, and bucks are shedding antlers and getting ready to start growing more. Yep. What food plot species or crop species is going to be growing during this time frame? You're Not many. Alfalfa's only- greening up. Clover's greening up towards the tail end of this. But deer are starting to f- try to recover and get ready for the next growing season, the next year of, of raising fawns, the next year of growing antlers. And you can't be focused you need to be focused on what you can provide during that time frame to get them ready for the next growing season mm-hmm. and that's through woody browse and then transitioning into early successional plant communities um, and that's that's all going to happen long before soybeans or corn goes into the ground um, so this is an important time frame to really manage especially if you're in the northern part of the country and you're dealing with severe winters and high stress periods um, this time frame right here is when you need to be focused on young forests and early successional plant communities. So, so what does July through September look like? July through September is kind of that. It's an interesting time frame because you still have early successional plant communities, herbaceous plants um, that are providing forage. Um, some of these, some of these are starting to mature. The early um, bloomers. And and so a lot of people say, well, the native vegetation's turning off late summer. Well, some of them are, but yep. then there's other ones that are doing phenomenal. Yep. And uh, that's why diversity is key in this. But then you even get into some soft mass production. Um, you can start seeing some American plums dropping fruit. You can see other plants dropping fruit. Um, and we go into the early part of the early part of the fall with September. And so even some hard masses is coming in. So you've got a mix of soft and hard mass as well as herbaceous plants um, and early successional plants, which would be important. But how many um, soft mass are we seeing produced? Let's take Dr. Craig Harper's research with his uh, thinning of basic crop, crop tree release versus fertilizing oaks. He found that releasing those oaks, allowing them to produce more mass production would be better if you thinned the forest and thinned and release these crop trees. Same thing could be true for soft mass trees. Um, and so if you have a whole bunch of persimmons in the middle of a forest, you probably realize they don't produce a lot of fruit. But you notice the ones on the edge of fields produce more fruit. Um, it's so funny. It's funny how that sunlight stuff works. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, I mean, and I don't say that like jokingly, but I guess I kind of do. But that that seriously is as simple as it gets. They need sunlight. Competition really. They they don't need that dense competition. No. Um, and so they do better when you've got a little bit of nutrients. And so, you know, you can have more of that production, soft, hard mass, by just thinning some forest. But we'll get into it in a little while. Then you go from October to December, the last part of the year. What's an important part of um, forage in there, hard mass, yep. and once again we're shifting back into woody brows. Back into the woody brows, very very quickly. As that depending depending on that mass production for that fall, you might have very little. You might have a ton. It just is variable based on the year. And so, 
it, some years you could have a ton of young forest regeneration that's super critical in November when you don't have a red oak acorn crop and they're just transitioning directly into that. And then the next year you've got a bumper crop of red oaks and they're just foraging heavily on that all the way to January 1. Yeah. You just, you, it, there's this variance back and forth. But again, that's why you have to have all these species. You cannot rely on one. If you rely on one, your usable space, like we're seeing on this property at this current time, is is horrible. Yeah. It's very if unproductive. You had, if you're like, I'm going to turn my whole place into young forest. Dumb. Well, then it, it'd be great during a certain time of the year, but they're probably the deer are going to leave during a certain time of the year to go find your er- missing elements. Uh, yeah, early successional plant communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and same thing. So when we talk about twelve months out of the year, we've talked about the forage values and what they're eating. But young forest, great cover. Um, early successional plant communities, you get that old field, great cover during a certain time of the year. Yep. And so you do that. You now we have usable space we have um, beneficial um, plant communities that are not only providing food but also cover yep and so therefore anything else is just cherry on top yeah aka food plots crop fields things like that so but but you you know just as much as i do food plots fail crop fields don't get planted yeah oh this and that regardless what what we got next here so how are deer utilizing this property at the time of purchase? Um, we talk about diversity all the time, when, and we kind of gave a heat map on where deer activity would be um, at the time of purchase. Well, they in that first year, they did a little bit of cutting um, in, the, in part of the farm. So they had some young forest, and they had kind of this bedding thicket, temporary forest opening going on, uh, which was odd ironically enough the hot spot of a lot of deer movement um and then you had more movement along the edge and this is where people refer to deer as being creatures of the edge and it's a question that we kind of ask and i know direct dr harper asks this a lot kind of drives him nuts it's kind of <laughs> funny to see him sometimes but uh are deer really creatures of the edge and it's of he says no they're they have to use the edge because there's plant communities there that aren't found anywhere else that are important in their diet. So so that's a perfect example of the the edge that a lot of people think of as high value and what this property where the heat map basically is is along the edges of these fields because the plant communities are, are that deer relate to are there. But outside of those where the plant communities that deer would want to relate to they're not there. They're not utilizing those portions of the property. Uh, and if so, it's extremely infrequent. And therefore, like, you can create those same plant communities that are now found along the edge everywhere. So yeah. it doesn't, it, it does, it's not the fact that they, that there's the edge present. It's the fact that the species that you're only seeing growing along the edge are there. Yeah. So in this case, the fields, the open areas were cut for hay. Mm-hmm. So... More perennial plants, shrubs weren't going to be growing there because they would get bushhogged down or cut down. Um, but the sunlight factor is there along the edge. So we're looking just where the sunlight is coming in over the top of the hayfield and in, and penetrating into the timber 20. 20, 30 yards. And that's where there's enough sunlight that you're getting this growth of different plant communities that once you go past that edge aren't happening because it's shade most, time, most days yeah. out of the growing season. So that's where... Creatures of the Edge comes into play um, that 
they're really only utilizing it because there's stuff there not present in the rest of the property. So very small when you look at a heat map of this place on where deer activity typically was, well, it's not it's not a lot of acres no. and we need to change that. Um and so you look at um you you have to look at the property basically as a business. And I think we've talked about this before yes, on, we on the podcast is okay, if if we have this common goal of making this 150 acres as beneficial or as useful to the deer or the, the species we're wanting to promote, then then let's think of each acre on the property as an employee because as a business and a business plan would do is address each individual person employee how are they going to be utilized? Like, what what is their role in developing the business, furthering the business, adding value to the business to accomplish the goal of being profitable in whatever field that business is operating in? Yeah. But but what happens in this scenario when we look at, okay, I've got 150 em, quote-unquote employees or acres that I'm dealing with, but I have... <laughs> 120 that probably just need to be what yeah fired something needs to happen they because they're get, under they need to be they're under pulled in and have a <laughs> serious conversation seri- <laughs> come into jesus meeting yeah. or yeah. a uh or completely let go from the company yes or you could even look at these as team leaders they're they're leaders of an outfit over a whole acre of employees uh, either way we need change change and uh and so, basically, if if you're looking at your farm from a business aspect, and you're looking at each acre as a team of employees, and are they are they helping you reach your goals? Are they helping you reach your margin, your your sales goals? If not, they get fired. They gotta be gone. And, and here's the thing that, man, I, I struggle with without trying to like push too hard, but but truthfully, Adam, what 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 we're our job is to do is to is to evaluate current state of the habitat and if this was left alone down the road what value does it bring and in a lot of places we find that if you left something alone you're going further away decreasing the value from every benefit. aspect yeah your 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 habitat your wildlife holding capacity deteriorates your um your timber value deteriorates um your overall diversity is degrading everything is degrading in the walk away method the preservation mindset because invasive species um mismanagement all, all sorts of things lack lack of uh, you know the continued disturbances but but the point is you can't like you you have to change and you have to be willing to change acres like give them a new name give them a new purpose redirect them with the various tools that we talk about every single week on the podcast to create that disturbance that will allow then those plant communities that we're wanting to promote that deer will relate to and need at some point throughout the entire year if you if you just leave that alone you're never going to get that that acre or maybe it's 10 acres or 20 acres you're like eh, i don't really want to touch it's kind of pretty it's it's not helping you it just period. It's it's yeah. a dot, and it won't. It no. won't go to the goal. So that's fine if you want to d- devote that. If that's if if you're okay with that, but the you have to know the reality of what it's doing or what it's not doing. 
And 10 acres can be a lot. Like you do 10 acres, 150 acres, that, that's a considerable amount that you're like, eh. I'm yeah, not doing think about it from the standpoint, too, of like if you've got 10 acres, yeah, it's only 10 acres. Well, there's a lot of guys that would kill to be able to manage 10 acres. Kill to do it. I'll and tell you so, what, you can do a lot of good in 10 acres. Yeah. A lot. And, and so don't don't leave a stone unturned. Don't leave an acre unmanaged. Yes. Um, and so basically when we're looking at this from a standpoint of uh, forage and cover produced in overall usable space, look at it from a standpoint of going, okay, there's 110 acres of timber. There's 40 acres-ish of open pasture. What can we do to make this better? Um, so from day one, now fast forward, what we recommended, number one, use herbicide to remove the cool season grasses from the hay fields, um, and promote early successional plant communities. So we're trying to fill that summer, spring and summertime forage, as well as year round cover. Um, and so spraying it out, removing it and managing, uh, for diversity and so we knew that the seed bank was probably there to be pretty productive because of the little blue stem and big blue stem that was seen while it was still fescue. Uh, so once that was sprayed out, within one year, we completely changed this landscape for years to come. Um, now, management over the next coming years is all we're doing is really removing invasives, Risa Lespedeza, Autumn Olive, whatever may pop up in that old field. Um, we're going to remove those, can keep those at bay. We're going to manage it with fire, but also we're going to monitor the native warm season grasses so they don't get too thick. And um, if they get too thick, now we're, we have cover, but we don't have forage. That's one big problem with native grass plantings um, or strictly native grass monocultures is they aren't providing any forage. Correct. If we want year-round usable space, we have to have forage in there as well with, with forbs. And so, uh, and that's, you know, if, if it's straight grass, yeah, sure, it may be good cover for quail, but they need forbs. They need flowering plants to attract insects, so they have food. They need those forbs to produce seeds so they can eat that during the winter. If it's just strictly grass, you're losing the beneficial factors for year-round use. Yep. Um, so then you go into the timber, how can we promote more young forest? Well, we can do temporary forest openings, so we can cut several one- to two-acre clear cuts in the timber to increase young forage regeneration so we have that food from, you know, it's year-round, but they're really going to key on it from October to March. And so we're trying to cut in enough areas to to ho to have enough food available so it doesn't get over-browsed, but not so big that it makes the hunting strategy a little bit harder because you you have such big blocks of young forests that it's like they're probably mm -hmm. out in the middle of it but they may never come out yep. for the next week yeah um so we're doing a bunch of bedding thickets temporary forest openings or clear cuts scattered around um to promote that young forest which is great forage through woody brows as well as cover Another big thing we're doing, we're restoring a glade. We're cutting cedars off the glade. Um, we're thinning the post oaks, creating a healthier um, healthier stand of post oaks so they produce more hard mass. And we're also returning fire to the scene um, in a diversity of fires so we can promote forbs if we need more forbs. Or we can promote grass with more dormant season fires if we need more grass. Um, and so now we're creating a glade, which is going to be great um, fall and winter 
um, bedding because it's in the sun. It's typically a south or a west-facing slope. And uh, also it's going to be filled with diverse forbs. So we've got year-round, bloom, or not year-round, but growing season, um, scattered different uh, flowering plants. So we're attracting insects throughout the growing season. And then we have the, the seeds of the forbs throughout the throughout the fall and winter for for birds and, and other species. Yeah, so. So, I mean, at, at that at that rate, here's here's all the different things that we're doing. Um, we we've addressed all the acres on the property with this little quick One plan last review. Thing. Sorry, go ahead. Timber stand improvement or yes. forest stand improvement, depending on if we're trying to grow timber, uh, which they are uh, in in their oaks, hardwood stands. So they're just removing. If you want to get technical, you're they're removing employee trees that aren't going to provide any benefit or aren't providing any benefit because they're 30 foot tall and what forwards they do produce is well without a reach of, of the deer. Um, and they may be not produce or they might not be producing hard or soft mass for other wildlife. So, um, they're going through and tenant, uh, thinning hickories, uh, if they're too thick, which they usually are in the Ozarks. Uh, they're thinning elms if they're too thick. They're thinning cherries if they're too thick. They're they're thinning oaks if they're not if they're uh, if they're crooked or they're diseased or they just don't show any signs of being stressed for too long and they're deteriorating. They're cutting those out. They're getting sunlight to the forest floor scattered throughout the property, so at least we're getting some cover and some forage. But we still have our hot spots of young forest where we know deer are concentrating their their bedding. But we've addressed them. We've done something. We've either brought them into the office and had that serious meeting with those acres and said, "Here's here's the deal. You're you're gonna continue to function as let's say a forest, but we're trimming a lot. We're letting yeah. a lot of sunlight in, or or, or we're trimming you're the gonna, fat. Yeah, you're gonna be a field." But you're not going to be a field comprised of fescue. You're going to be a field comprised of diverse forbs and some grasses and some woody resprout. Whatever it is, you're you're not gone, but you're transformed. Yep. And to usable space. Yep. So how do you uh, quantify the value added? Yeah. Let's think about uh, that. Because that's the whole point of this is like how much value by doing this does the property actually increase by? Yes. So consider closed canopy forest. That was about 110 acres, producing yep. 50 to 100 pounds per acre. So that was producing 8,800 8, mm -hmm. pounds of forage. So you could hold four deer. Okay. That doesn't do us any good. No. If we're really wanting Crummy. more, we got to get rid of that. We got we to gotta up our odds. So you could go to a managed forest, which, uh, you know, depending on the site, depending on the slope, depending on the species, you know, if there's aspect. more weed trees and we're cutting weed trees more than uh, there's crop trees available, let's just go anywhere from three to 900 pounds produce. So we're increasing it. But in this, on this farm specifically in the makeup, we're going to go average out at 600 pounds of forage produced per acre. So we're upping it a lot. Then you go into young forest. So we've got our different you know different acres of temporary forest openings that's going to jump back into young forest that's a thousand to fifteen hundred pounds per acre that's a I big that. jump I when love you go that. from 50 to 100 to a thousand to fifteen hundred that's a big jump yeah. and then of course we go from tall fescue pasture which was a big goose egg <laughs> yeah. for forage produced to yep. old field which is three to thirty five hundred pounds per acre 
talk about a jump. You you can cover some ground and yes. make up some ground on the usability, the forage, and because the cover in that is tough to beat. Great yeah. fawning cover, great cover. Um, if you have some shade components to it in the in the growing season, but then again during the fall as well, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's it's really really good value added to the property. Yeah. So this is a graph that just is is. We sh- honestly might be the top of the the th- for this podcast, so you guys can see it. But time to tally up the increased forage, increased cover, overall increased usable space. So, so, so before yeah. we had just over nineteen thousand pounds of food on this one hundred and fifty acre track. Okay, so nineteen thousand pounds, which doesn't sound like it sounds. It, it sounds it like sounds wow, a, quite that a bit. That sounds like a nineteen thousand. That's that's a big number. But that's in all, re- all reality, that's junk. That That's eight deer. It's junk because the number we're about to share with you is is what happens down the road. And, and I truly believe this, that just ad- addressing this 150-acre property and the management that needs to be done to it, I think that this jump can happen within probably a four- to five-year range um, you know, of a of your typical landowner with the time available that that they have, if they were to address this plan, they could probably accomplish these numbers in four to five years. Yeah. I think I think that's fair to say. And so we're going from nineteen thousand to nineteen thousand. So roll. that's that's eight deer, okay? Yep. A roughly eight deer that we could hold to a hundred and seventy one, just under a hundred and seventy two thousand. So pounds of food per acre on the exact same property. So if that food that we're trying to create by all these different management strategies also equals cover, then then the usable space has drastically increased, but the food value increased by, I think it's nine times. And yeah. therefore, how many deer can that hold? They could hold 86 deer. Yeah, yeah, nine, yeah exactly. Yeah, and it's 150 acres, so we know that deer are leaving the property. Yes, but you're, they're spending more time on the property because there's more forage, there's better cover, there's better usable space. And, and we're not saying that 86 is the number of deer that we anticipate, want to, or try to hold. All we're saying is that is that is if you only and we don't look at the spatial distribution of those said deer, that's the potential that the property could hold. Yes. Like, quote, unquote. Like, it, is that realistic? No. And that's not the goal. But what we're saying is that's the amount of food, and we always want additional food on the landscape, but that is the amount of food and forage that is going to be produced annually just by creating a, let's say, business plan addressing the acres that are unusable to deer and making them usable. So, a couple things times. we did. We oh. made this more diverse. So there's more forage from January to December, whether that be through herbaceous plants, early successional plant communities, or young forest. Uh, two things. Keep going. And at the same time, we're now adding a, a habitat that can be used by bobwhite quail, more cottontail rabbits, more native songbirds, more insects, more squirrels. Sure. More wild turkeys whatever it is name the native species we're we're creating a landscape that can produce more of the needs that those animals it is, need it is obviously heavily heavily skewed for production of whitetails so that's the stated goal but these other species will benefit here's the other thing we didn't plant 
a dang thing. I mean, not not one species was added. Yeah. We we simply utilized the species that were there on the property. Yes, their current state need to be changed and manipulated, or we need to expose the seed bank, but nothing, not a fruit tree, not an oak tree, not a food plot in this equation was added into it. We didn't waste time doing that until we managed what was naturally occurring on the property. Nothing was planted. Everything was just simply changed its shape, changed its function. The management changed. That yeah. I, I want that to sink in for people. That much big of an impact, and we haven't even planted a food plot. No. Nine times just by addressing Money was spent on herbicide, uh, maybe chainsaw. a chainsaw, sharpening chainsaw chains. Uh, a sprayer uh, unit. Yep. Outside of that. fire. Yeah. Just tools just that tools. you're going to use into the future. Just tools. And sharpening your brain. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the biggest thing was time and work. Yep. Um, Nine times the yes. amount of production, usability, and function of a recreational property, 150 acres, changed for years and years and years and years to come. So here's the thing. They actually did a, some of this work. They're still planning on doing more and more of the work. It's work in progress. But they've already seen quail. Yep. And he killed a really nice buck. Yep. Saw a lot of really nice deer, and they're seeing a huge increase in daylight activity with whitetail deer on their farm. Uh, but how and, are deer and you can utilizing? Hear more about that there on the yeah, other, other podcast. How are deer use, utilizing this property before? We talked about a heat map. Now, pretty much the whole farm. Once this plan is implemented, the whole farm's going to be it's red. Is red because <laughs> it's dark <laughs> because we've created quality. Um, diverse habitat throughout the entire property. Now their deer have, they've got food, they've got cover, and uh, it, they've got water already on the place. And, so, and the the important thing is, as we'll go to the next slide, is every single month of the year is addressed. There's not a time frame now that this has been. Uh, it recommended and beginning to be implemented that deer will be suffering or there will be a resource that is lacking or limiting on this property. Deer can can spend their time on this, the boundary, within the boundary of this property for the entire year. That's right. There's not a window that's missing. And I, I'm sure that someone thought critically about their place and knew that, okay, I don't have any early successional habitat are they going elsewhere, or are they just not receiving that? Are they not benefiting? Because we, we want to recommend and uh, design a property and, and manage a property so that deer are thriving and not just simply surviving. So what are the limiting factors there in your place? How are you going to increase the usable space on it? Is it going to be five times the benefit? Is it going to be nine times the benefit? Is it going to be 12 to 15? Who knows? But... But you have resources available through the natural re- the, the natural plant communities that can be utilized before anything is even added. That's right. Ugh. Guys, I hope this helps you see the forest, the trees through the forest. Because if you look at your property as a business, there's a whole lot of bad employees on almost any bad, farm you look at. Bad, bad, There's bad, bad employees everywhere. <laughs> yeah, there um, are. And so they either need to buck it up and get better or they yep. need to go. Yeah. 
You're fired. Find find another job. Get out of here. That's right. You Uh, can either – we can change your role, and you can be a 30-foot American elm that's crooked, or and we can change your role by cutting you now, and now you're stump sprouting. You provide a ton of forage and better cover. We can change your role in in the property or in the business, or you just got to go. So it could be a – type of tree species that we don't want so we're going to cut you and treat it we're going to treat the stump you've been fired you've been fired you're gone and now we're going to let some other employee take your place whether that be a a forb or another tree yep Um, and and we're going to just let it take its place naturally yeah so there you go guys that's kind of we're increasing the overall productiveness of your farm that's our presentation here at nwtf whitetail weekend nwtf did i say that qdma QDMA. As he's wearing a, a QDMA lanyard around <laughs> his neck. <laughs> and it's been a busy spring. We've been at NWTF, and we yeah. also here at Q, QDMA. So, and, uh, and big shout-out to QDMA. Man, they're doing some, oh, some awesome stuff. I can't believe we forgot it. But what? We should announce that you're listening to the 2020 oh, yeah. <laughs> Owl Brothers Deer Manager of the Year Professional, uh, the Professional Award. Uh, award. And, and I, I – we're definitely honored to have received that. Hopefully you guys saw the picture there on um, social media, but that is such a, such a big thing. And uh, thanks one to everyone who listens um, because you're a huge, play a huge role in that. And, and to QDMA staff and to anyone who's utilized land and legacy and its services, uh, huge, huge, huge. Thank you. And of course to our wives and family at home who, I'm not gonna say they allow us to travel. They probably don't like they that tolerate we travel. It. Yeah, they tolerate it. Yeah. But um, and at that uh, that was a huge surprise for us this weekend. But an awesome thing, um, kind of a feather a feather in the cap. So we know we're doing the right stuff. And the group of QDM, like the staff, um, gosh, they're such they're fun. Yeah, they are. If you guys aren't with. a member of QDMA, you really should be. A great organization. There's nothing like supporting an organization who has a great mission or a great product, and the people are just as good. Conservation-minded who are trying their best to make the resource as healthy and as as enjoyable for anybody and everybody across the country. That is QDMA at their heart, and they, they spend a lot of time and resources in doing that. Uh, learning a lot about the Field to Fork program this weekend, too, which is awesome. Hopefully we'll have some more information coming down the road on, on that program, um, how people can get uh, to be a part of that. But please spend some time, become a member of QDMA. You will not regret that information, and uh, your dollars and cents are going towards conserving the white-tailed deer. That's right, guys. Thanks once again, and we'll catch you next week. See ya. Yep.